Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Culture, the inescapable facet of humanity that saturates, shapes, and sways. What does culture tell us is important? What does it tell us to value? Do the themes of today align with what the gospel says is enduring and meaningful? The messages of culture can be so loud, so pervasive, and so crushing, yet so quietly stealthy at getting into our souls. Just do it. Have it your way. Obey your thirst. The cries of culture put us at the center of our world. Just go after it. But instead of chasing after the counterfeits that will slowly crush us, we are asked to come. Come to Him who can satisfy our deepest longings. Come to Him who will give us rest for our weary souls. Come to Him who is crushed for us. Instead of taking what culture says is true, we need to become students of truth by reading what the world says and comparing it to what the Word says by hearing the world's news and recognizing it doesn't compare to the good news, by seeing that the world offers empty promises that lead to despair and looking to the King who makes us His heirs. All right, if you guys would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I love the turmoil after like songs are over and even the like video up there. It's like some people are like, I don't know if we clap. We can be excited if church is a safe place for that. It's like, I love you guys. You can, you can be excited that Jesus is alive. I feel like that's, yeah. <laughs> As you guys just saw, we're working through a series titled Catchphrases That Crush. And so what we're looking at is various slogans that our society Uh, drives and leads and says. And the reason why we're looking at this is because we want to understand exactly what the video said. Here's what society says as a whole. And then ultimately, here's what the word says. And so uh, uh, our our societal kind of words come at us just as a flood. And what we want to do is understand what is being flooded into our minds, but also what the gospel is, what the word is, and how it counters a lot that's coming at us. And so that's why we're taking this time to go through this series titled Catchphrases of Crush. And this morning we're going to look at the slogan of Walmart, which is save more, live better. And so uh, we've looked at a few others. We've looked at what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We've looked at Lexus once and for all time perfection. And this week we're looking at save more, live better. And so 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's toward the end of your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be in verses 9 through 19. Uh, We're also going to be looking at some other verses as well as we dive in this morning. That's where we're going to be, and that's the series that we're in right now. And so uh, our main point is going to be this. If Walmart says, save more, live better, this is what we're saying our main point is this morning, is those saved from more give and live more. Got it? So we're not saying better. Those saved from more give and live more. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we're here. (laughs) And in the midst of so much going on in our lives, uh, just pain, frustration, hurt, busy weeks, a pandemic, there's so much, God, we're here. And so we can just first pause, reflect, and praise you that you've brought us here, and that we're here, and that you're good. 
and that God, you're in full control of everything that is happening in our society. We thank you that you've given us minds that reflect your mind, minds that can reason, God. We praise you, you've created us in your image and given us words to communicate because you're a God who speaks and you've spoken through your word. And we pray this morning through the power of your spirit and through your divine, authoritative, inspired word, you would speak to us, you would minister to us, you would heal us. Father, we know that the voices of culture are loud. We know that culture is constantly telling us how to uh, uh, shape our minds, how we should live, how we should love, what we should serve. I pray you would realign our hearts this morning and our minds and transform them through your word and through the gospel. We praise you that first and foremost and above everything else, that we are not left to perform our way into your good grace, Father, but instead you've given your good grace to bring us into your presence for eternity. I pray we, we are reminded of that this morning. I pray we would celebrate. I pray for the uh, Pattersons this morning as they're struggling uh, with sickness, that, Father, you would uh, give them strength. Um, but we also recognize this. Sometimes we take Sabbaths, Father, but sometimes you allow our bodies to Sabbath. And, and um, so we pray this is a time even in, for them to just rest. Father, we pray for Valerie continually. First, we praise you, um, Father, that uh, she is doing so well. And we praise you that you're a good God and you're a God who hears our prayers. Continue to heal her. Give the Carters peace during this time of uncertainty. Give them strength. Give them trust in your goodness. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, let me start off by saying this. I, I, I don't think that most people would say, save more, live better, and that we've adopted the Walmart slogan, and, and we would automatically just assume that's going to lead to a better life. However, I think there are things that we do that actually prove that's probably a reality or things that we don't do that prove that that's a reality. So just let me give this illustration. If you were standing out on a sidewalk next to a really tall building and out of nowhere, someone pushed you out of the way and then right in front of where you were standing, a balloon dropped that was gonna hit you in the head. You would probably say like, Thanks. I, I don't know that I see the big need for anything more than that, but thank you. But if you were standing there and just in a moment, someone pushed you out of the way and a massive car or piano dropped where you were standing, you would be in shock. Your response wouldn't be, I need to figure out how to like conjure up enough gratitude or say thank you to someone. You would be in shock and the immediate response typically by something like that going, I was just standing there. This thing weighs several thousand pounds. If it had landed on me, I was dead. Now I'm alive. It's typically going to be thank you. Like, wow. Like, I don't have to figure out how to stir up enough emotions in that moment to figure out why I should be thankful. We can look at that situation and go, man, this is something to be thankful for. And I believe that the more that people realize that the gospel of good news, the gospel of grace, the gospel of what God has given to save humanity is not just like the balloon, but it's like the piano, then the more it stirs up gratitude in our hearts and lives. Not something that we have to fish for, not something we have to find, but something that we behold and go, my goodness, why would a good God give something like this to me? I also think that as we look at save more, live better, we can just uh, strictly focus on money. And I don't believe that's what all of the Bible is, is, is looking at. I believe it's calling to bear on all of our lives, our time, our finances, how we live. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says, we do not segment our lives, giving some time to God, some to our businesses or schooling while keeping parts to ourselves. The idea is to live all of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God and for the honor of God 
and glory of God. That is what the Christian life is all about. And so again, when we look at save more, live better, or specifically for our main point this morning, those that are saved more, give and live more. I think what we need to look at is that there's not one area, but we're talking about the whole of the Christian life. So read with me 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. I know not only are we jumping into a, uh, a pastoral epistle, but we're jumping into the end of one. So quick context. Timothy, young guy. We know that from scripture. A young guy who struggled with timidity. I don't know a single Christian, myself included, who does not struggle with timidity in some areas, okay? And so we know that he struggled this, but we also know that he was pastoring a pretty difficult church. Uh, a, a church that had, it uh, seems, a pretty good grasp on doctrine, but necess- not necessarily what it looks like to have a, a life that's lived out or that reflects the good news. In other words, we see in the book of Revelation, there's this charge to the church of Ephesus. You love good doctrine, you love sound doctrine, but you seem to have lost the love you once had. So in other words, it's possible to love sound doctrine and not be really good at loving people. And so it could be very well, this is the kind of church that Timothy was left to pastor. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and we know one thing about Paul. Paul loves Timothy like crazy. It comes through in how he writes. It comes through in his language. It comes through in his charges to Timothy. And so that, that's what we're picking up today. But the section right before this is actually talking about this. It's saying, if, if you go back and read this, this is where we're jumping in. But it's, it's saying, and Paul is saying to Timothy, hey, don't pursue godliness as a mean to gains. In other words, and people do this. They are living godly lives as a means to get rich. And he was like, don't, don't do that. Don't be that person. Don't pursue holiness and godliness as a means to have some sort of material possessions. He's saying, don't do that. There's many churches today that are packed out in the U.S. because of the message of the prosperity gospel. If I do good things, God will give me good gifts. And then we go back and read the apostles and go, my goodness, these men were faithful and they had horrific lives that ended in a very dramatic manner for for, for many of them. I mean, John was boiled alive. And and, and so it's, it's just a what it is, is it's not just a, like, oh, that's a, that's a bad message. That's what that is. The, the prosperity message is a bad message. And Paul's saying, hey, don't go through life thinking that because you, you're godly, that what you're going to get is rich. But then we jump, to, jump into verse 9, and this is what he says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into, uh, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Other translation for pain is griefs. So here's our outline. Verse 9, we're going to look at the ancient problem. Okay? The ancient problem. This is nothing new. It's the ancient problem. Verse 10, we're going to look at the problem underneath the problem. And then we're going to look at the solution in need. Okay? Verse 9. Let's read it again slowly and carefully. But those, who's referring to, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people. Notice, it doesn't say that plunges them, but because you have a desire and temptation to be rich, it plunges other people into ruin and destruction. Like, do we actually believe that? What Walmart says, the more you save... And the more money we can save you, the more your life is going to be better. We get to God's word, and God's word says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare. A snare is a trap. And the whole premise behind a trap is that you don't know you're in a trap until you're in a trap. 
we have uh, we we have <laughs> we have a rat problem at our house. I was like, I don't I don't know how to say that. It just sounds bad. We we have rats. Okay. Uh, our neighbors came over this a uh, couple weeks ago, and they think that our rat problem is uh, the, their rat problem is uh, due to our chickens, which I've heard that can be the case, and so maybe it is. So I went to Wilco to get a rat trap to be a loving neighbor, and I, I went in there, and, and and the guy told me something. He said, "Hey, just so you know, whenever you uh, set this trap, he he said, uh, don't set the trap at first. Put like peanut butter, or whatever you want on there, and let the rats get used to walking on the trap. Then when they come back after a while, then." It'll hammer them. So I was like, well, that's, that's brilliant. And, and so Paul is telling Timothy, this whole trap thing is, is a snare. You don't see snares. You don't see traps. That wouldn't be a good trap. If it says, here's a trap animal, walk into this, then it's not a good trap. The whole premise behind a trap is that you can be blind to it. And the truth is, is that we can be blind to greed. Timothy Keller, a pastor who I love, has said that he and all of his years of ministry has never, ever, not once, had one single Christian confess greed to them, ever. Ever. I have never once had a Christian uh, profess greed. He taught at uh, uh, um, a series of lectures at Harvard, and he said they were packed out. All of them were. The one on lust, he said, was packed out. He goes, the one on greed, his wife said, <laughs> no one's coming to that. And he was like, she was right. There was hardly anyone there. And, and what he says is this, and I believe it's true. Most people don't know that they struggle with greed. It's not as obvious. It's just not as obvious to us. Like if you are committing the act of adultery, you know that you are committing the act of adultery. It's an obvious sin. Jesus talks twice as much about greed, the gospels do, than about adultery. Three times as much more than drunkenness. Why? Because again, no one's ever like, I didn't know I was drunk. I don't know how I got here. It's like, you know when you're drunk, you know how you got there, and it's pretty obvious. Greed is sly, it's sneaky, and it's a trap that you don't know that you're in until you're in. But here's the problem, is it seeps into other areas of life. Greed is the thing that can drive and lead many sins because it is a taking and consuming, is that I need more, I want more, I have to have more. It's like salt water. The more you drink, the more you want, and you can't ever get enough until it destroys you. Salt water literally will kill you if that's all you're drinking. And it's what greed does, but it does it in a very sly way. So much so that if we actually believed what God's word said, then it would say those who desire riches and fame are going to fall into temptation, into a snare that plunges uh, 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 many people into ruin and destruction. Again, it's plunging other people into ruin, into destruction. Again, this isn't a new problem. This is an ancient problem. We don't have to turn back there, but walk back with me to Genesis 1. What is God doing? God is not bored. He's eternally existed, fully satisfied in the, in, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God gives creation. What is God doing? He's giving. He's giving the sun, which does what? It gives light. He gives the moon, which gives light. He gives water, which waters the crops. And he gives vegetation, which feeds the land. God is a God who's giving. And he's doing this out of his grace. There's nothing that is stirred up in humanity to where God goes, wow, look at your gifts. It's all an act of God's grace. That's what he's doing. He's giving. And then he gives the woman to the man. And then the man and him, or, or he, he, he takes the man and the man starts giving names to the animals. There's this giving and giving. And then what happens in Genesis 3 is this. The woman sees what was good for the eyes. And it was desirable. And she took. She took. 
in a sense, greed is that. It is, I see what I want and I'm going to take it. And not only will I take it, but I'm going to need more of it because it's an endless cycle that will never satisfy me. And from then on, what we see is that um, Lamech took wives. People took, people took, people took. And then what happened was the shift of the ancient problem, the fall of humanity. God gives, the fall, man takes. And now man cannot get enough. Again, greed is sneaky. It blinds, it seeps in. We can probably look at a lot of the problems in our life, a lot of the sin that we have fallen into. But here's, and, and, and if we look carefully, what we can probably trace a lot of it back to is greed. I got here because I was taking, I couldn't get enough. I wanted more and I wanted more and I wanted more until it built and it built and it built. You know, 156 years ago, Christians would go to church on a Sunday like this. And then they would go home and mistreat their slaves because they thought it was okay. They, they were blind to the actions that they were doing. And then we can go, oh yeah, they were awful and throw stones at them. But the truth is, is that we're also blind as well. If our greed leads to destruction in the world, I think we can get a real honest picture and say, yeah, it's actually done that. It's actually done that. The average person in the U.S. has about 11,000 $700 in their savings account. If you make 25,000 a year, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. Today, over 1 billion people live on less than $1 a day and another billion live on less than $2 a day. In Somalia, more than 750,000 people are on the verge of starvation. Today, around the world, 20,000 people will die of starvation and preventable disease. There's a region actually in northern India with a death rate of roughly 5,000 people per day. 0.01% of this region claims to be Christian, which means that 9,999 people every day are dying who are separated from God. What does this have to do with us? On an average, Christians give about 2.5% to their local churches. Churches on an average, give 2% to overseas missions, which I'm not a mathematician, simple-minded, but one, one person did this and broke it down to basically every $100 that, uh, that Americans give equals out to be at about five cents it's going overseas. Again, we can look at what happened 150 years ago and go, wrong! But then if we look at our own greed and what's happening, I think that we can see that maybe that we are blinded, that we are entrapping a lot of the, what we do now is leading to destruction. There's a lot of studies out there on this. First, I want to say this. I'll tiptoe here a little bit. I think that what I'm talking to is something that looks different than the homelessness that we see here in Eugene. And I say this because morning after morning, I can go up to my office and there's a full box of food that was untouched sitting at the bottom of the stairs. There's packages of food that's not even open. And so I think there's more of a sin thing that is going on here. And our homeless people do have access to three meals a day, which is something a lot of the world would just go crazy to have. I think a lot of what's going on and, 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 and a lot of what we see could actually be fixed. The studies that I was talking about are like, if people actually gave, if billionaires gave, if Jeff Bezos, if Mark Cuban, if a lot of these people started giving, could we actually curb, prevent, stop world hunger or something like that? And people are like, probably. But then we often go, yeah, the billionaires should do it, not us. 
And so I think we have to be willing to say, is there a chance that the American dream that, that has been portrayed, even through a simple statement like save more and live better, is it something that we've adopted? Is it something that we've pulled into our lives? And here's the other thing, is that America is one of the top 10 wealthiest nations in the world, and we consume the most. We are out, we, we, if we're competitive, we're leading the charge for antidepressants. So if save more, live better was true, then how come we consume 80% of the world's pain medication and the majority of antidepressants? If the average home has 11,000, I know some of you guys are like, right, we don't have that, but if the average home does, then how come it's not necessarily living out what it's promising to do? And also to be clear, I don't think just feeding people is going to be the, the number one cause we need to do because you can have a full belly and still never know Jesus. And I think that is a greater need that is going on. But this is an ancient problem. And part of it is that the more that we get, the more that we want. And then what actually happens, which prevents us from uh, living better, is we become like guarding dogs over a bone. You ever seen a dog that has a bone? Like they don't even get to enjoy it. They're just snarling and growling anyone that's trying to come near it. My kids are like this. Like they are so controlled over by their toy and anyone touch it or take it from them. I'm like, you're not even enjoying your toy. Man, you, the only thing you're doing is like trying to prevent anyone else from touching or taking or getting your toy. Save more, live better. Look at verse 10. The problem underneath the problem. Because then we go, well, let's blame money. Paul makes it clear. That's, that's not the problem. <laughs> we are. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice, not money is the root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains, griefs. What does he mean by the love of money? I think this is the problem that's underneath the problem. And what it is, is it's your treasure. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I spend and have no problem spending money on things that I like. We, we used to, uh, what we still do, our family gets an allowance. Our family, my wife and I get an allowance. And I used to, as soon as I got it, I would, and I've shared this before, I would use all the money to buy books. That's what I would use all the money. I had no problem buying books. And my wife is like, is that really what you want to spend your money on? I'm like, it's really what I want to spend my money on. Now, money is a great pointer because money will typically show where our treasure and where our love is because these things are pointing to something and it's pointing to our source of identity. I wanted books because I was insecure and felt inadequate in conversations around theology. So my acquisition of knowledge, if I could gain a bunch, then I would enter into conversation and feel like I had my wits about me and I could hold my own and do that sort of thing. So my identity was in if I can control the situation or gain people's approval, that is what will drive me. We can do this with a lot of things, guys, girls. I use, I use uh, hair treatment, Rogaine stuff, right? It's a fun thing to say up here. <clears throat> Why? Because I don't like aging and I want to have hair. But the funny thing is, well, one, Renee's told me that it's not working. So it's a waste of money. I get my tips from Zach, who also struggles to have hair. But if we look at the amount of money that is spent on facials and on beauty products and all that stuff, those are typically pointers to say this, that what the Bible would call as aging is good. Gray hair is good. We would say, no, it's not. We will do everything we can in our power to prevent the process of aging from happening. And here's the thing, 
when you make beauty your idol, that's typically driven by something else, which is likely probably the approval of man. See, underneath all of this, there's something that is driving the things that we do that we spend money on. And what they do is they give us a source of security, which is a source of identity. But here's the thing, is if you make approval of man your identity, you'll never be satisfied. And as soon as you lose it, you'll be wrecked. If you make beauty your ultimate satisfaction identity, you will grow old. We will all grow old and we will never be satisfied. If you make control your identity, if I can buy things to gain a sense of control over my life and situation over security, then what happens when the Oregon wildfires strike out and everything that you have, any material possession is burnt and you walk away with nothing. When you make power your God and you lose power because you lose your job and you lose any sense of power that you might've had, is it a good identity? You see, your identity in Christ is nothing, it's nothing first that you gain, and it's nothing that you can lose through your works and actions. It's secured through and in him. It's the only identity that has eternal worth and purpose that lasts forever, that's gonna be carried with you into eternity. It's the only thing in our lives we're staking everything on because we can't lose it. You can't unmake yourself a child of God. So the problem underneath the surface is that our money typically points to our treasure. And our treasures can easily also be identified by just looking at our checkbook, but also what stirs up emotion in me? You, you know, my wife would tell you, and she, she said, if there's one thing that would send Rick to prison, it's someone messing with our family. And so I've even been at playgrounds before, and there's like an eight-year-old messing with one of my daughters, and they come over to me, and I'm like, which one is it? And I go and I talk to him, I'm like, please don't do that. And then he stares at me, and I was like, I found myself like staring him down, like with my eyes getting more evil, and I'm like, what am I doing? And I'm like, the Bible says, show no partiality. So I'm like, eight or 80, it's on, okay? Doesn't matter the age. But the, the truth is, is because my family, my girls, my wife, that's, that, that's a lot of my treasure. And when you start messing with my treasure, then you start seeing people's emotions. When you start messing with people's money, it's, it's funny, but you start to see emotions. It's like, we can ask people about almost anything in Christianity. Or we can ask people about a lot. You can ask them about how I'm doing in this area, doing this area, doing this area. What would your response be if someone came to you and said, hey, what does greed look like in your life or what percentage you give your time and money and stuff like that? You know, it's like, whoa, 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 you can't talk to me about that. That area is, is untouchable, but why? Is it because we know where our treasure is at? Is it, no, is it because we know that we've adopted a save more, live better philosophy like Walmart's? Maybe we should actually take more cues from the old, late, famous theologian, Notorious B.I.G., who said, mo money, mo problems. Literally a whole song about it. If you listen to the chorus, I know, but, but, but it says the more money we come across, the more problems we see. It's like, did P. Diddy and Notorious B.I.G. know more about it than, than, than what Christians do? Because it seems like that's the way that we've adopted. The problem underneath the problem is our money is a pointer and it points to our treasure, which points to the place that we're probably finding our greatest source of security and comfort from. We can probably spend a lot of money as Americans on comfort and our checkbooks would likely reflect that. I think there are plenty who would say that we give far more money to some of these other areas than we would ever give to someone else. So the question is this, if we were being honest, do we possibly love material possessions? Do we love other things more than we actually love people? If someone stepped in and said, let's take a look at your finances, would it look like Christ is your financial advisor or Satan? I know it's blunt. But who would it look like you're taking your cues from on how you live and operate with your time and money and your life holistically? 
which leads us to the solution. Look at what Paul says here, verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He doesn't say ignore them. He says, flee them. And, and, And then he says this, pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. He gives them a list of non-material things. He doesn't say pursue these things. He says, pursue these things, eternal things, things that have worth, things that have matter. I also think that if we're going to look at this, what we need to do is go back and see what Jesus had to say about this in Matthew 6. I don't know if we have a slide for that. But in Matthew 6, look at what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I wonder who Paul's getting excuse from. Look at this kind of sandwiched in piece right here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is, uh, that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he talks about treasures, then he talks about the eyes, because our eyes are the very thing that give us this, like, what we see is what we must have, like Eve. We must take it, we must consume it. And then he says this in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But seek first, look, look here, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All right, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek these non-material things. Seek the king and his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He, he then goes into this whole section about anxiety. And then he says this at the end of this section. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Another translation is given to you. Do you know what Christians should do? is our response first and foremost is to know how much we are saved from. To know and understand that if we seek the righteousness of Jesus, what that leads us to do is go, wow. When I seek his kingdom, when I seek his righteousness, then I have to study, learn, and know and understand that his righteousness is then imputed or it's given to me. When I study the righteousness of Christ, what it does is it produces a life of generosity. And so if your aim and goal is to be like, how do I do this? If my pastor is going to shame me, guilt me, or if I just focus on doing this more and what he's saying, no, 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 no. Instead, what you need to do is pursue his righteousness. The more that you look at the righteousness of Christ, it's freely been fully supplied and given to you. And you go, man, I don't deserve this. Then it produces something. If you know and understand back to the piano analogy, that it was ultimately Christ that stepped in and didn't just push you out of the way, but he was crushed by it then you go, whoa. And that's what happened on the cross. Christ took the place that our sins deserve and was crushed by the wrath of God. So we wouldn't have to be. When it says pursue his righteousness, it starts to make us think. You don't have to turn there, but I love the high priestly prayer of John 17. It could be summarized as union with Christ. He says something in John 17. If you go to verse 25, Jesus is praying to the father and he says, oh, righteous father. The Greek word there, and this is one of the times where Greek is important, is dikaiosune, okay? So he says, oh, righteous father. I'm sorry, it's dikaios there. Oh, righteous father. That's what he says. That's what he's calling God. Oh, righteous father. When the son calls the father, he calls him righteous. Completely righteous. Then you read 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says this. 
He made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the dikaiosune, the righteousness of God. In other words, the complete purity and holiness and righteousness of God is, is given to us. When Jesus calls God righteous, it's now saying that same level of righteousness, not subpar righteousness, not medium, not junior varsity, the full righteousness of God, the righteousness of, that God has is given to us. It's given to us. The, the, the solution is not looking at stats and saying, well, if we manage this and do this and do this, that's, that's a mind thing. It's also not emotions. I could tell you all these things about what's going on in the world and maybe stir up your emotions for a little bit. What has to actually happen is this, is Christ has to become your greatest treasure. But the only way that happens until you realize that you became Christ's greatest treasure. Think about it. What is the one thing that the wealthiest king of all the universe did not have that he came to earth to get? And I don't like this song, just to throw it out there, um, beautiful name that says he didn't want heaven without us because it's almost like there was something insufficient in Christ. Christ had everything. He didn't have this like, he, he had like a codependent love where he needed your love to satisfy something in him. No, that makes it even more powerful. He didn't need anything from us. He wanted us. He just wanted us and he wanted us to be in his family. And the more that someone grasps this, the more they go, man, I can't believe that I'm saved from this. And it changes the way we live. Just let me say, from someone who stands up here, who was an adulterer, a fornicator, a womanizer, who's someone who was uh, just despised by my, I feel like, father through his own language, as someone who was at one point in my life called a monster from, by a Christian woman, a, a predator by another Christian man, who was numb, who was hardened, who was an addict. In fact, I think everyone in the world is an addict. Give me enough time with you and I'll show you likely what we're addicted to. I can make sense of some things, but I can't make sense of why in the world Christ would want to make me his treasure. I can't make sense of why in the world God would save me by his grace. I can make sense of simple math, but I can't make sense of that but all I can do is worship and praise and be thankful that it's a reality. I went a couple weeks ago to my daughter's dance recital. It's contemporary and apparently you don't scream at those things. And I was, there was a kid next to me like plugging his ears, whistling, screaming. And I was just like, man, she is awesome. And then you know what I read? I read Zephaniah 3.17, which says that God not only sings praises over us, he delights over us. And it's like, it clicked. No one was going to stop me from singing praise over my daughter. I don't even know if she's good because I don't know anything about contemporary dance. Had nothing to do with her performance. Had everything to do with it, the fact that she's my daughter. And that's the way that God sings praises of delight over us. It's not based upon our performance and our childlike behavior. It's based solely upon the fact that we're his children. And again, I can make sense of some stuff in my life, but I cannot make sense of why in the world Christ would want me in his family and be willing to suffer and pay so much to make that a reality. But he did, and he does that for us. And the more that we grasp that, the more that we behold that, the, 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 the natural response to that is to go, whoa. I think it's oftentimes why the most generous people you meet in life are the people that understand how much they've been saved from. 
think that the people that have the most joy in life are oftentimes the people that realize how much they've been saved from. Maybe the people that don't take life as serious is because they realize they're like, my goodness, like yesterday I was dead. I should have been dead. Scripture says that today I'm alive. I'm a child of God. I get to be with him for eternity. Colossians says it this way. It says, it says this in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus didn't just come in and say, you got a bad credit score. Let me get rid of that for, thing for you. Jesus came in and said, you got a horrible credit score. The worst thing I think oftentimes for many people is they think that their credit score is like a five or 600. And Jesus comes in and just gives a little boost. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad if you read your Bible. He doesn't come in and say, let me clean this lady. He comes in and says, let me give you a perfect credit score. My score, my righteousness, it's yours. And you can't change it. You see, verse 14 of Colossians is good, but it's only good if you read verse 13 first, which says this, and you were dead in your trespasses. There's not some people that are dead, born dead in our trespasses. In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. The good news is good news is when we realize that we were dead and that we couldn't save ourselves and that Christ did it fully and freely for us. This drives people, again, not just money, but time. And please, I want to say this graciously, but truthfully, it's like a lot of times, a lot of the problems in our life are because we spend more time playing video games, more time watching Netflix, more time doing any of these things than actually we do giving to people and making disciples. And I think the more that we grasp this to change it, and there's proof for this. Once, ultimately, Scripture says it's good enough. But in Luke 7, don't turn there now, but I'll just briefly summarize the story for you. There's this woman who's known as, in the city as a notorious sinner. And she steps into this household and she's weeping and she's crying. And do you know what she does? She takes an alabaster jar of ointment and she breaks that thing open and she pours it over Christ and anoints him. 300 denarii, which in our days would be about $350,000. It's nothing to her because she understands that the man in the room is her treasure because ultimately she knows and understands that she became his treasure. And there was no cost to anything that she wasn't willing to give up to make that clear and make that known. So she's like this, yeah, no problem. For him, it's worth it. <laughs> like, I'm his treasure, that should not be the case. I'll give everything, I'll, I'll, I'll give anything. And, and, and the Pharisee in the home says, what are you doing? Don't you know how great of a sinner this woman is? And he tells this parallel and he says this. In short, those that are forgiven much, love much. Those are that are forgiven little, love little. And so the question for us this day, is there something in our lives that makes us believe that we're somehow forgiven of little? Or do we actually believe and know and understand that we are forgiven of much? Which leads to this. The response is not poverty. The response is not minimalize your life as people love to write books on. Look at verse 17 and we'll close with <clears throat> the response. I said, those saved from more that recognize that give and live more. This is the response. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, riches aren't bad. You can enjoy them. It says it here, but look at what else it says. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The response that we live with is not minimalism, it's generosity. The very thing that flows from this is generosity. And ask yourself this, what does God need from me? If scripture talks about this thing, what does the richest person in all the universe need from me? Nothing. So maybe he actually is concerned about your heart and what greed does to it. 
And so he says this. I love what Calvin says. It's, it's not God that needs your good works. Christ took care of those. It's your neighbors that do. The same thing with our generosity. Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the earth because we are the ones that know how much we've been rescued from, but also what we've been rescued for to live a life of generosity. Let me be honest, church family. Our church family has a generosity problem. That's, that's, that's the truth. But I think the solution to that is by us looking more at what Christ has done, what Christ has paid, and then saying, do I believe this? And then saying, is God's plan for me to turn over these areas of my life of time and finance and everything else, is it actually more about him caring about my heart and wanting me to live more and more abundantly? It's a way for us to practice to say, I'm not owned by my time and money. Christ owns those, he's allocated them to me, and they are not going to take full possession of my life and of my joy. I love what Packer says, the measure of all love is its giving. Think about that. The measure of all love is its giving. The measure of the love of God is the cross of Christ. If you want to know how much God loves you, here's the truth. We're all greedy, myself included. Christ died for that. God didn't look over in heaven and say, what could I give up here that would show them some love? There's Michael, there's Gabriel. Yeah, I could give this, my son. Man, as a dad, that's something I would never do, which proves the depths of God's love through the gift that he gave. And one way that proves, in a sense, that this grace is melting our hearts is through the lives that we live, how we see time and how we see money. So Christian, let me encourage you. Live generously, because by doing so, what God is doing is reshaping and remolding our hearts to be what they were originally created to be in creation itself. Father, we thank you that we're not left with something that culture tells us, that the more that we save, the better we'll live. Instead, we understand how much we've been saved from. And ultimately, we have something greater than a possession, like a home or a car, something like that. We have Christ. Melt our hearts by this. In Jesus' name, amen.